We're going to be looking at verse 17. Verse 17 of Exodus 20. Verse 17 of Exodus 20. Uh, All right, it's good to be with you guys. If this is your first time here, thanks so much for being here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are very, very glad that you're here. Uh, If you would take a moment, uh, there's something called a connect card uh, attached to your your bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. Uh, And that's just a a good way for us to learn a little bit of information about you and and for you to request uh, more information about what God is up to here at Veritas and and learn some things about uh, what's going on at our church here and uh, we, we'd love to just get to know you a little bit and, and let you know a little bit about what is going on here. Uh, and one particular thing regarding the Connect card uh, is there, there's a little space on the card for uh, you to just let us know how we can be praying for you specifically. Uh, and we would really appreciate it. if you just take a few moments, jot a few things down there and, and let us know how we can specifically be praying for you this week and in the weeks to come. Uh, we would very much love to be able to do that. All right, Exodus 20, Exodus 20. So this is the last sermon in the series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're looking at the Tenth Commandment in Exodus 20, 17. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and, and uh, let's listen with, with reverence and with joy to the voice of our God. This is what he tells us in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us um, what you expect from us. We thank you for... um, sending Jesus because we uh, are woefully inadequate to to meet your righteous standard. Um, And as we see in this text, Lord, that that it's not just um, mere behavioral change that you're after. Uh, It's not that we're just called to to change what we do with our hands and what we say with our mouths, but um, you, you want us to honor you with our hearts and our desires and affections. And so, um, Lord, we, we have no, no power to, to change uh, our, our desires and, and our hearts. And um, so we just confess that we're dependent upon you to do that in us this morning. We're dependent upon you to, to, to stir our affections uh, for the person and work of Jesus. So would you reveal him to us this morning? Would you help us to see him in all of his beauty and worth and glory yeah, and, and to just respond in, in, in love and worship and adoration and, and desire to know him more. Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, grab a seat. Uh, in preparation for the sermon, I came across a sentence that, that just really grabbed me when I was reading a, a sermon by a pastor in London. He says this, I consider covetousness as the most generally prevailing and ensnaring sin by which professors of the gospel in our materialistic society are hindered in their spiritual progress. So he says, I consider covetousness 
as the most generally prevailing and ensnaring sin, so such a common and pervasive sin by which professors of the gospel, so Christians, by, in our materialist, materialistic society, they're, they're hindered in their spiritual progress. Now that, that sentence grabbed my attention for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, it resonated with me because, uh, like most of you, I also struggle with hearing the, the siren tune, that, that satisfaction and fulfillment comes from having a bunch of stuff, having a bunch of stuff, filling my house with, with a bunch of stuff. Uh, it grabbed my attention because I, I think he's exactly right when he says that it's the most generally prevailing and ensnaring sin in Western societies. It's so pervasive, and, and, and it grabs our hearts so, so often. Grab my attention because if covetousness does hinder spiritual progress, which I believe it's in the Ten Commandments because it does, then, and it's as pervasive as he claims it to be, then this is something that we must keep watch of in our own hearts. We must pay attention and, 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 and locate this in our, in our own hearts and, and fight against it with spirit-empowered spirit enablement. It grabbed my attention be, because uh, I, I, I believe that, that fighting against this particular sin and locating it in our hearts is actually pretty difficult. It's, it's hard to notice that in your own heart. It's, it's impossible to notice it in the, in the hearts of others unless it manifests itself in, in, in particular ways. But it's even hard for, for you to locate it within your own hearts. It's, it's so, your hearts are so mysterious and, and, and hard to figure out that, that it just slides under the radar often. And now, you know, it, it, and it's, it's even, it's hard to locate in others. I mean, you know, when, when we look at the rest of the Ten Commandments, when we look at, you know, commandments like you shall not murder and, and you shall not steal and you shall not commit adultery, those are, those are things that if we see people in our church family committing those sins, and, and then we're going to take them aside and we're going to enter into this church discipline process. But, but coveting is, is it's so sly. It's so, it just flies under the radar. It's underneath the surface. It, it's hard to notice often. And then probably one of the biggest things that grabbed my attention about this sentence is, is when it was written, when this sermon was preached. This was written by Pastor John Newton. You might be familiar with him. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, and he preached this sermon in 1795. In 1795. In 1795, John Newton says that this particular sin is so pervasive and generally ensnaring and, and because his society is so materialistic. Like, and I just found that shocking. This brother didn't even know what an iPhone was. He, like, there, were no, there was not a, a Lexus parked in his neighbor's driveway, no Volkswagens driving down those cobblestone streets in London in 1795. It, it, I, I, would be, I would be very interested to, to see what he would have to say about us today with, with our movie theaters in our homes and, and with, with, our, with our iPhones and with the, the mall down the street and, and with the green and Fairfield Commons and, and, and all these things. But he thought that they were materialistic in 1795. I just found that fascinating. Now, now, don't hear me say that there's anything inherently wrong with, with iPhones or, or Volkswagens or movie theaters in your home. What's, what's wrong is our hearts. What's wrong is, is our desires. What's wrong is our longings. And these possessions are, are merely exposing the, the sin that's already in our hearts as we're lured into thinking that satisfaction comes from consuming more and owning more, having more, buying more stuff. Those things that we own often end up owning us, even before we come into possession of them. And this was true for John Newton's church in London, 1795, and it's true of us here in Dayton, Ohio, in 2016. Because the problem isn't circumstantial, 
The problem is, is internal. It's with our hearts. We covet. And what is coveting? What is the 10th commandment addressing here? What's it, what's it calling us to? What's it forbidding and, and requiring? And, and what's it revealing to us? And so we're just going to kind of walk through this and, and look at these four points. What this command addresses, what it forbids, what it requires, and what it reveals. What it addresses, what it forbids, what it requires, and what it reveals. First, it's, it's interesting that this commandment doesn't address a particular action, right? It addresses the disposition and desires of one's heart. You, you could say that, that maybe the, the commandments to, to murder, uh, not murder, not steal, not commit adultery, they, they tie our hands from, from harming our neighbors. You could say that the commandment to not bear false witness, not lie, ties our tongues from harming our neighbors. But, but this one, it, it penetrates even deeper. This commandment goes down into the deepest, darkest parts of who we are. It, it, it addresses our desires and our affections, our longings. And it kind of brings us full circle. Uh, you might have noticed that, that the first two commandments, uh, to not have any other gods before God and, and to not uh, to make carved images, they, they address idolatry. They, they address the heart. And then the third commandment, to not take the Lord's name in vain, addresses uh, the, what you do with your tongue, with your mouth, your, your speech. And then the commandment to, to remember the Sabbath day addresses our actions, right? To, uh, entering into rest and, and, and ceasing from our labors is what you do with your body, with your hands. It, it addresses our actions. And then the second table of the law uh, continues to address what we do with our hands and our actions. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And then it, it moves back to our speech, just like the third commandment addresses not taking the Lord's name in vain. We're to not lie to our neighbor. And then it takes us back even deeper internally to the heart where we're, we're called not to covet. So we kind of see, kind of come full circle in the Ten Commandments here. We go from heart to speech to action, from action to speech to heart and desires and, and longings and affections. And, and it's interesting because this, this often goes unseen, but God's law addresses our hearts. God, God wants to address our hearts and our desires, what lies beneath the surface, because it can so often go unseen by us and, and by others. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 7 that it's because of the 10th commandment, particularly, that he came to know that the law was spiritual. We came to know that the law was spiritual. It, it doesn't just address our actions and speech. It addresses the deep recesses of our heart. The law is, is spiritual. And this is one of the things that separates God's law from man-made rules. God's law addresses the heart. Your, your rules at your work, your rules at, at, at school, your rules at, in your sports league that you had growing up, your rules, all man-made rules, they, they typically are just going to merely address behavior, but God's law seeks to uh, govern our hearts, and, and it goes deeper. It's spiritual. Uh, now, there are several reasons for this. For one, God's law addresses the heart because he sees the human heart. God sees the human heart. In Revelation 2.23, Jesus tells the church in Thyatira that he is the God who searches the mind and heart. He, he knows what is in us. He sees who we really are. God sees and knows our hearts, and because of this, his law governs our desires and, and longings. He's, he's not satisfied with merely being honored with our actions and lips. Uh, he actually says and uh, rebukes Israel in, in Isaiah 29, 13. He says, you, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He, he addresses the heart because he sees right through us 
And, and he requires him, he, he calls us, he, he wants us to not just honor him with our actions and, and words, but with our hearts. Another reason the law addresses the heart is because the heart is, is the center and the seat of our person. Now, when we talk about the heart, when we say heart in this context, we're not just talking about the organ inside of your chest. Uh, it, we're, we're talking about what I think the Bible means when we talk about the heart is, is that it's the center of your most fundamental desires. It's the center of your most fundamental desires. It's the seat of, of your longings and, and, and affections. It's all that we do, all that we are flows from the inner part, this inner part of ourselves called the, the heart. Our thoughts, our feelings, our, our actions flow from here. Our, our deepest desires dictate all that we say, do, and think. Our hearts are the well that all of these things draw from. Proverbs 4.23 is getting at this when, when Solomon tells us that we're to protect our hearts because from our hearts flow the springs of life. Flow the springs of life. And in Matthew 15, 19, Jesus addresses this. He says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. All the, breaking all of the Ten Commandments ends up coming from this place called the heart. These things flow from our hearts. The, the heart is, is fundamental here. We, we break this commandment and sin in our hearts long before it manifests, manifests itself in, in action and breaking the other ten commandments. And that's why this particular commandment, along with the first two commandments, address the heart. Because it's in these commandments being broken that the rest of the commandments will inevitably be broken as well. Commenter James Murphy puts it this way. He says, improper desire is the root of all evil. It can seldom be reached by human legislation, but it is open to the searcher of hearts. The intent is that which, in the last resort, the intent determines the moral character of the act. The last commandment is therefore the central section of the whole of the Ten Commandments. Our hearts determine our actions. What we do with our hands inevitably comes from our hearts. Another reason God's law addresses the heart is because the heart is sinful. The heart is sinful. You know, in pop culture, you, you, you often, there's often just a, a line of thought that, that says that the heart is it's just generally this pure thing, this good thing. That's why you hear, uh, you know, things like, follow your heart, and your heart will guide you. Your heart will tell you what to do. Uh, and, and, you know, if what we just looked at is true, then you don't really have a choice but to follow your heart. Um, but often we, we hear things like this because the heart is seen as this pure thing. And, and, and the belief is that inside we're, we're all basically good, however misguided our actions might be sometimes. And we just need to tune in to this better part of ourselves. But that's just not the way that the Bible speaks about the human heart. Uh, and this is, this is easily, you know, we've seen this creep into the church as well. We say things to excuse our sinfulness. Like, you know, God knows my heart. He knows my motivations are pure. That's just not, the, the Bible gives a completely different diagnosis here. We're told in Genesis 6-5 what God sees. It says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was only evil continually. And Jeremiah 17-9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and, and desperately sick. Who can understand it, he says. Our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are, are deceptive. They're, they're a mystery, even unto ourselves. And so God's law addresses our hearts. So Alec Matir tells us that 
Uh, it is the function of the Tenth Commandment to make explicit the internalizing of the whole law and the dire reality of sin in the heart. So because God sees the heart, because the heart is so important, so powerful, and because the heart is sinful, this commandment addresses our hearts. But what in, what in particular does it call us to? What is, what is coveting? You know, what, what does it forbid here? We see that this, com- this commandment forbids coveting, but, but what, does that, what does that mean? What, what sorts of desires and thoughts and longings does that include? Coveting is not an incredibly common word used today, but it means the, the improper desire for what belongs to someone else. The improper desire for what belongs to someone else. This commandment forbids the sinful desires and, and longings of our hearts for what belongs to someone else. Now, it's also worth noting that this commandment doesn't forbid desire. It doesn't forbid desire. Uh, you know, Christianity is, is not Buddhism. We, the, we, we would not say that the answer to sinful desires is not having any desires. Uh, no, desire is a good thing. It's, 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 it's part of being a human being. Now, biblical Christianity denies that desire, that, uh, that desire is wrong in and of itself. Desire is not forbidden. Improper desire is forbidden. When your desires are disordered, when uh, you, you desire the wrong things, when you desire even good things, but uh, when you desire them too much, it's when you begin to crave after that thing. It's, 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 it's when you begin to hanker after, even if it's a perfectly fine thing to want. But if you crave it, if you hanker after it, if you say, if I could just have this thing, I would finally be happy and fulfilled. If I could just have that house, I would be fulfilled. If I could just have that car, I would be fulfilled. If I could just have this spouse that looks and acts like this, I would finally be fulfilled. If I, if I could just have this much in my bank account, if I could just have this size waistline, the pecs that bump up and down whenever you flex them, if I could just have that thing, then I would finally be fulfilled. And, and, and I think, you know, when, when we uh, have this this uh, looking for this fulfillment, when you look at your neighbor and say, I need this thing that she or he has in order to be fulfilled, that's, that's coveting. You might be thinking that sounds a lot like I- idolatry, and you're exactly right. You might be thinking that, that sounds a lot like what was described in, in the first and second commandment, and, and you're exactly right, it does. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3.5, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists out these things. Sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. And it can be, covetousness, it's, it's, it's worshiping at the, at the feet of what belongs to your neighbor rather than our creating and redeeming God. Covetousness is when your heart clings to something and you require it for your happiness. I need this to be fulfilled. I need this for my happiness. And it can be hard to locate in ourselves. It can be very hard to locate in ourselves. Just like we talked about in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is sick, it's deceptive, it's hard to understand. Sometimes it can be a little easier to discern uh, if we just ask ourselves a, a, a series of questions. We ask ourselves, is, is what I'm desiring here wrong? Am I desiring the wrong thing? If you desire someone else's spouse or multiple spouses or, 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 or a romantic partner of the same gender, if, if you desire a, a, a vocation in which you sell drugs or, or in the pornography industry, if you, if you desire these things and you can say, okay, this is a wrong desire. I'm, I'm desiring the wrong thing. 
But it's, it's also, this commandment kind of hones in a little bit for us. It's not just uh, any desiring the wrong thing that's forbidden. It's also, it, it hones in more. It forbids something a little more pointed. It forbids a particular way of desiring things. Because of this, we also need to ask ourselves, is how I'm desiring wrong? Not just is, is what I'm desiring wrong, but is how I'm desiring wrong. Because you can desire good things and do so in a way that's sinful. Uh, you, you, can know, you, you know, the, the things listed out in this commandment are actually really interesting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You, you shall not covet his wife or his servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's very comprehensive, anything that is your neighbor's. But the specific things mentioned here are interesting. You know, a house is not an evil thing. It's a perfectly good and fine thing to want and own. Uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting an ox or a donkey. So I've never particularly struggled with coveting those, but, but it, it's not something I've, you know, it's, it's how you desire these things that's sinful and, and needs to be repented of. So how do, we, how do we locate that? How do we recognize that in ourselves? And so two things that you can, you can say when you're feeling this way, when, when you notice this in yourself, you can say, okay, I, I'm guilty of the sin of coveting. The first thing is, uh, you see coveting in your heart whenever you envy or grieve at someone else's success. Whenever you envy or grieve at someone else's success. If you've ever spent much time around kids, you've no doubt seen this. Um, Children, you know, they want any new toy or any toy uh, that is currently in the hands of another child. It, It arouses, once a toy is in the hands of another child, it like instantly arouses their interest in that particular toy, even if they had no interest whatsoever in it before that. And when this happens, it pretty much immediately results in breaking the Eighth Commandment to not steal. Uh, but this continues as we become adults. This continues. Uh, we, we hide it a little bit better, but it, it continues nonetheless. When your coworker gets that promotion or, or raise, uh, you, and you think to yourself, man, I, I, I deserve that more than they do. They, they, don't, they don't deserve this. I'm a better worker. I, I, I work harder and longer hours. I should get that promotion. I should get that raise, not them. Or, or when uh, you, you have a very close friend that, that ends up getting married and you really desire to be married and to, to have a family, but, but you're still single. You see a friend uh, graced with that wonderful gift and, and, and you think, man, I, 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 I hate them right now. I'm, I'm grieving at, their, at, at the gift that they've been given in this. Or when a friend gets to go on that vacation that you've always wanted and you're just jealous, you envy them. You recognize this sin in your heart when you envy or grieve at someone else's success. Another way to recognize coveting in your heart is when you're dissatisfied with what God has given you. When you're dissatisfied with what God has given you. When you, when you look at your lot in life and the kind of money you make, the family you've been given, the, the neighborhood you live in, and you say, I deserve more than this. I deserve more than this. This is not enough for me. You know, there's an entire industry that's built on this chronic dissatisfaction that we struggle with. This is what drives our consumerism and and our materialism, the the advertising, the the obsession with the next thing. As one pastor says, we live in the cult of the next thing. Our our phones work perfectly fine. You know, you can make calls on them, take pictures, and and search Google on them. But we need that that, that new phone that just came out. Or my computer works completely fine, but this new one just came out, and I can do this particular thing that I don't even need to do on it, so I want this. We're not thankful for what we have. We're, we're not satisfied with what we have, and we need the next thing. We just celebrated Thanksgiving 
a couple of weeks ago, a day where we're supposed to spend time, spending time with family, eating, enjoying what God has given us, and, and giving thanks to him for what he's given us. And that very evening, there's a traffic jam at the Fairfield Mall. Because we're going to consume more stuff and get more stuff because we're not satisfied with what we have to get that new TV, that new phone, or whatever else. We, we trample and fight and bicker and argue for good deals. Black Friday exposes this darkness in us, this chronic dissatisfaction with our lot in life. We're not thankful, we're not satisfied, we hunger for more stuff. Jesus gives us this good word in, in Luke 12, 15. He says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. But then we also want to think of this commandment in light of the negative positive rule that we've been following as we've been working through the Ten Commandments. So this commandment not only forbids a particular sin, it also requires something of us. It's not just uh, that we're to avoid a particular disposition of our hearts, but we're called to pursue something here as well. So what does this commandment require? We'll just move through this really quickly. This commandment requires contentment. Contentment, satisfaction with our lot in life. Uh, the, the Benjamin Keach Catechism asks the question, what is required in the 10th commandment? And the answer it gives is this. The Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. Right on. Contentment. Contentment. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have. That doesn't mean that you never desire anything. It doesn't mean that you never make another purchase. It means that you're so satisfied with God and what he provides. You're satisfied with what God has given you. You're satisfied with knowing God and having fellowship with him through Jesus. It means that you're thankful because of what he has given you. It means that you're generous with what he has given you. you you're generous to the church and to the, to the poor and oppressed and those in need. You're, you're thankful, you're generous, you're content. And the writer of Hebrews lets us in on this little secret in that text that we just read, that, that godly contentment, that being satisfied with what we have, that being thankful and generous, it, it isn't a circumstantial thing, it's a relational thing. He says, be content with what you have for, for, because of, in light of this promise, be thankful for what you have because Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Contentment doesn't come from having enough stuff, having enough money, having the right house and car and right family and right job or anything else. Contentment comes from knowing Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In ev any and every circumstance, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment comes from knowing Christ. We've been given all that we need 
him in this life and in the life to come. We've been given all that we need. We've been reconciled to God, the God of abundance in him. In him, we've been redeemed and raised to new life in him. We've been justified and adopted by God in him. Who cares about a house full of stuff when you have Jesus? Who cares about a house full of stuff? Jesus is enough in all of his beauty and worth and goodness and glory. He is enough. He is the well that never runs dry. Money is a broken cistern that if you worship it, will leave you thirsty. Stuff, possessions, they're broken cisterns that if you worship them, they will leave you thirsty. Family, as good as family is, as important as it is, if you worship family, it is a broken cistern that will leave you thirsty. There is one well that will never run dry and his name is Jesus. He is enough. He is enough. Contentment can only be found in him. Seek in him your heart's contentment and your heart's satisfaction, and you will find it. Jesus tells us in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And John Piper comments on that passage and says, in other words, what it means to believe in Jesus is to experience him as the satisfaction to my soul's thirst and my heart's hunger. This commandment requires that we be content, and contentedness can only be found in Jesus. It can only be found when we eat of the bread of life that satisfies. It can only be found when we drink from the well that never runs dry. It can only be found when we're satisfied in Jesus. What this commandment reveals is our need for him. Because our hearts are sinful, because our hearts are, are sick, they're covetousness, they're covetous, because contentment can only be found in Jesus. We need Jesus. We need him. We need union with him. We need to be reconciled to God through him. We need his righteousness to cover us. We need his sonship shared with us. We need the new hearts that only he gives through his work on the cross and in his resurrection. And we close with this. We close the whole series with this because this is what God's law reveals to us, that before him and his righteous standards, none of us can stand. We we have no hope if we stand before God in our own righteousness and in in our own goodness. We, We aren't basically good. We're not good people. We do bad things. We don't worship the right God, and we don't worship him in the right way, breaking the first two commandments. We take his name in vain by seeking to glorify our own names above his, breaking the third commandment. We we don't honor his day. We don't spend time with him, breaking the the fourth commandment. We we don't honor our parents and and, and those who deserve honor. We murder and are angry and and hateful. We lust and fornicate and commit adultery. We we steal and cheat and deceive. We lie and and, and tell half-truths. And what the 10th commandment reveals to us is that we do all of those things, not out of ignorance or being misguided, but because we want to. Because we break the 10th commandment. Our hearts are sinful. Our, Our desires are sinful. They're disordered. They're wrong. We desire the wrong things. Our hearts are covetous. But the good news is that God doesn't leave us in this hopeless state. He meets the need revealed in this commandment. 
He doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave us in our covetousness and, and wrong desires. In Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, we receive this sweet and precious promise God gives his people. He says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This commandment reveals our need for this. It reveals that we just don't need, we don't just need the law on these pages, we need the law written on our human hearts. We, we need the law written on our hearts and our innermost, to change our innermost desires and longings from, from longing the wrong things to, from, from, from desiring the wrong things to desiring and longing for Jesus. Simply seeking to modify our behavior will not do. Simply seeking to, to clean up our words and actions will not do. We need new hearts, and we need what only God can give. As we celebrate Advent, we would do well to remember this is the exact promise that the, that the church of the Old Covenant, they were waiting for. They were waiting for Jesus to come to purchase our forgiveness by bearing our iniquities on the cross and, and being raised from the dead. They were waiting the sending of the Holy Spirit to fill us and write these Ten Commandments upon our hearts. And this is exactly what God has done in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Tom Askell puts it this way. The law was given to teach sinners their sin. When a sinner sees the law in all its strictness and spirituality, he thereby comes to understand the spiritual bankruptcy and grave nature of his condition. The law, able to condemn but unable to save, sends the convicted sinner looking for salvation in the only place that it can be found. It sends him to Jesus Christ, who in his perfect law-fulfilling life and perfect law-fulfilling death gave himself to redeem helpless sinners. When Christ receives repentant, believing men and women, he forgives them, grants them his righteousness, and gives them his spirit. He writes his law on their new hearts and empowers them to follow him in obedient discipleship. As the one who perfectly kept the law himself, he then leads his disciples to obey the commandments. Friends, my, my hope is that in the last 11 weeks as we've been walking through Exodus 20, that we, what's been revealed to us is that we are a church of spiritually bankrupt and impoverished people, but that we serve a, a rich and generous God. He, he is good to, to us spiritually bankrupt sinners. He, he gives us his law to drive us to Jesus through whom his grace abounds to unworthy sinners, who, who, who through whom he forgives and gives new life and writes his law upon our hearts. May we look to him. May we look to him to see what he requires of, requires of us in his law and what he graciously provides in Jesus in giving us what he requires.
Let's run to him to be our righteousness, the joy of our hearts, and the satisfaction of our longings. Let's pray together. Father, um, we thank you for uh, Exodus 20. And we thank you now that, that we're in a covenant with a better mediator. That now we're, we're in a covenant with, with Jesus, through Jesus, with you. And that these Ten Commandments don't come to us anymore through Moses, but through Jesus. And they've been transformed and, and widened and, and deepened in him. And so would you help us to, to see the Ten Commandments in, in light of him, to see what you require of us, to run to him, and to find our satisfaction, find our righteousness, find all of our need met in him, because he's the only one that can give what we need, because he's the only one that offers what he offers, namely himself. Would you help us to, to feast on him, to eat his flesh, to drink his blood, to find satisfaction in him, and to look for it nowhere else? Let us drink from this fountain and no other. Let us drink from the well that never runs dry and no other. Let us eat the bread of life and find satisfaction in him now. In Jesus' name, amen.